The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind Body Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable. And let's dig in. Hi, everybody. This week, I am talking to my friend Emily Barney about our relationship to success and ideas of success. Um, I think it's pretty common for us to say we want to be successful or we want our children to be successful. And um, obviously, we all have slightly different definitions of what that looks like. And um, sometimes I think we absorb ideas from other people or from family or culture or society or even religion that tell us what success looks like. And sometimes those things are not necessarily things that are going to make us happy. And then I think there's an interesting question around what does happiness have to do with success? And I think that's a pretty individual thing, but I really wanted to kind of dig into that this week. And so I invited my friend, Emily Barney to come talk to me about it. She is a lifelong entrepreneur. She's really interested in building businesses that make the world a better place. And she right now is the CEO of an organization called Visionality that works with nonprofits to optimize their work. She lives in Ventura, California, and she loves dogs, puzzles, and a really good glass of wine. In fact, she just got a new puppy and I got to meet him last night and he's really freaking adorable. So join me and Emily while we talk about our ideas of success and how we relate to that. All right. Thank you, Emily, for being here with me today and agreeing to talk to me about success and what that means and how that's changed for all of us over time. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, So let's just dive right in. I am, I would love to know where your first sort of ideas about what success are and what they look like or what they should look like? Where did those come from for you? Yeah. Um, for me, uh, it's certainly my family and, you know, just candidly, I, I grew up in a privileged 
position. Um, <clears throat> and, and in my family, success meant owning a home. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day that my parents paid off their house mm-hmm. and they, they took me and my brother to dinner and like, we just lived in a, a normal life, right? Life was just whatever it was. Um, and then one day they took us to dinner and they said that we had paid off the house and then everyday life shifted for us. And like my mom and I went shopping a little more. We ate out a little more like nothing crazy nothing you know I mean buy new cars like nothing insane happened but um that just was always the measure of success and as I'm talking yes it's a measure of success it's also a measure of safety and security it's also the definition of the American dream right being American is a bootstrapping it. We can have a whole different conversation about that. But number two, the American dream is to own a home. Like that is how yeah. America, American uh, wealth is structured. So, so yeah. that's sort of my, my history with success. And, and, and it really, for me, historically has been that one defining factor. Do you mm-hmm. own a home? Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And I love that, that you sort of conflate that with success or I mean I'm sorry with safety because I think it makes me wonder how how many of our ideas about success have to do with security right like having a certain amount of money in the bank or you know having a quote-unquote secure job or um you know I mean I grew up thinking you know thinking like having a college degree right was the thing because it was going to give you some measure of predictability around what your earning power could be forever, which is not, (laughs) but, (laughs) but I believed it. Yeah. So, um, was there, do you feel like there was this sort of pressure from, from family members for you to be like, hurry up and own your own home, hurry up and buy a house? No, a hundred percent still. Yeah. And, um, you know, thank, thank goodness for therapy. It only took me 37 years mm. to for me to take a big step forward in realigning my relationship to home ownership aka success and you know because like you know I I'm good at things right I'm you know I think a number of people externally looking would use that word success right in in yeah. relation to my life and um And so I really unpacked like, well, Emily, why don't you own a home? Why, why don't, why isn't that a reality in your life? And, um, it, me not owning a home is actually the, um, the outcome of a number, many life choices that I, A, don't regret, but B, am deeply proud of and committed to. And so just sort of taking this, you know, I, I could own a home if I made very different decisions about my life. You know, I grew up in Colorado and, you know, the price of homes is a lot different in Colorado. And if (laughs) I, if I made a very different life choice to build a life somewhere else where I'm not happy, right. 
I could probably have this one measurement of success. Um, another big one, I did own a home, Carrie, mm. when I was in a deeply unhealthy marriage. Mm. So the choice to leave that relationship is part of why I don't own a home. I chose to exist in Southern California as a single individual, which is really hard to do to be a single income household. Um, and that, you know, leaving a relationship that was unhealthy for me was, of course, the right choice. And that has led to the reality that I don't own a home. Um, and the the third major factor that I have identified, a choice that has contributed to me, quote unquote, not being successful is owning a own, owning businesses and running ethical businesses. Yes. So, so you can run a business and withdraw all of the wealth from the business. And right. you can do that by paying low wages, by abusing your employers, by taking advantage of your clients. And if I did those things, there's a chance I would own a home, but because, um, we have pay equity in my company. I do not make yes. multitudes more than my lowest paid employee. Um, mm-hmm. be- because we care deeply for our employees' emotional well-being. So we don't expect them to work 80 hours a week as salary. We expect them to work 40. Mm-hmm. And if you're going through a rough spot or your mom had surgery, we're going to pay you to take some time off, not your vacation time, not your sick time. We're going to give you some time off because you're a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, my, my company, we do consulting for nonprofits and even the industry that I choose to operate in historically pays devastatingly low wages, which by the way, is a result of white supremacy and, uh, and, and the patriarchy and, you know, white wealthy women work in nonprofits, which means we can afford to pay people less because they are only working to make themselves feel good, not to support a household. Um, And so then you know, that is the labor market that I'm drawing my employees from. So then again, the choice to be a leader in a thriving wage in the nonprofit industry. Again, if I didn't choose that, I could probably personally have a lot more money. And so just sort of, it's been this process of unpacking the primary contributing factors of why I don't own a home right now and thinking, oh my God, not only do I not regret those decisions, I'm proud of them and they are core to who I am. And I never want those things to be different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it reminds me of that, um, that saying, right? Like our, our brain's job is to keep us safe. It's not to keep us happy. (laughs) Like, so, so yeah, of course there's this there's this kind of primal drive to have to find security, right? And if capitalism is the water that we swim in and the air that we breathe, then security means financial security. And so that becomes the sort of end, you know, that yes. becomes the justifying, 
reason for literally everything we do. But if we start to ask ourselves, what is it that's going to make me happy? Yes. The, the answers are very, very different, right? Owning a home, I can tell you, I do own a home. It doesn't necessarily make me happy. <laughs> let me let me tell you when things like fall apart or okay, right? you know, the housing market goes up and down when there's, I mean, and that's not to say, I mean, you know, my kids are all renters as well. And, you know, their rent fluctuates with the market too. So it's not like that's, it's, I'm not saying it's that makes you happy to be a renter, but but I think if we can take those kinds of things completely out of the equation and start to think about like what does success really mean to me as a whole human being, not just as someone who has to bust my hump to have enough money to have a roof over my head and buy food, you know, then and that's a scary thing to ask, right? I think. To some extent, it takes some, it takes a certain amount of privilege to even be able to ask that question. Oh my God, a huge amount of privilege. Yeah. Um, well, and so my, my therapist says that you can have success in three categories, relational, emotional, and financial. Mm. And, and so, I mean, I, I really feel like in America or maybe in capitalism or, or whatever the construct is, we're focused on financial success. What car do you drive? Yeah. What vacation can you take? Do you own a home? What, what, clo- what clothes do you wear? Yeah. And, and so, you know, unpacking the truths about my um, success within those three areas, you know, my, my emotional success, my, my love of myself, like my, um, my pride in my choices. Um, that is a success that many people don't have to, you know, they, they wish a multitude of things were different about their emotional relationship with themselves. And, and I think too, about relational, you know, similarly, my, family hates that I live in California and I don't quote unquote live by family, but there's this incredible thing called found family. And, and in, in my worst moments, and, and I think about, you know, some medical emergencies that I've had, or, you know, my, my doggy died incredibly unexpectedly, you know, over the matter of four hours. And, Mm -hmm. And the depth of relational support that I have in those moments, you know, it, it's just what, like humbling and kind of like there's, it's, it's overwhelming because there are people around me and, yeah. and then to even exploring that, that third category, the financial success, I have run a profitable country com- company for 13 years. Like, that's great. You know, I am a single lady and I pay my own bills. That's great. I paid off my car. That's great. I have a safe place to live. That's great. Yeah. You know, when, when my doggy was in emergency and they gave me the $3,000 bill, I wasn't, that was fine. You know, I'm a right. person who can withstand that kind, that level of unexpected expense 
Um, and so it's just so interesting, you know, so by, I think by some people's judgment, perhaps I do have financial success, but it was just, you know, going back to that initial question is like, where did I develop my definition of success? And it was my upbringing. Right. Well, and I think, um, you know, when you talk about the different the different levels of success or the different kinds of success, right? If we're looking at that sort of capitalist notion of you should own a home, you know, you should be climbing the corporate ladder wherever you are, you know, you should be getting a promotion every 18 months to three years. You should be, you know, able to take a vacation, you know, to Hawaii once a year, like whatever, right? What we're neglecting to look at is that so much of that is dependent on external factors that we don't get to control, right? Is there a recession? I mean, look at 2008, right? (laughs) You know, like, Mm -hmm. yes, there were people that predicted that, but it's like, there were so many people that lost everything, right? Who prior to that had looked like from the outside, they were particularly successful because they owned a business, they owned a home, you know, and, but when you're talking about the other kinds of success, you know, when we talk about that relationship to yourself and the relationship to your community, right? Those things are dependent on factors within us. And so the irony is that while, you know, our brains are out here telling us you got to hustle more, you need to get a better job, you need to own a home, you need to have all these sort of trappings of success, the, in order to stay safe, the one thing that's actually going to make us truly safe is to be in a good, healthy relationship with ourselves and the people around us, right? Absolutely. Building that community. And that's what you've done with, you know, by building the company that you've built the way you've built it, right? Sticking to your values and your passions and your morality and your understanding of like, what is it for us? to take care of each other? You know, what kind of work do we want to be doing? And how do we want to support each other? And in that way, I think, what if we expand, you know, that third category from, instead of using the word financial, what if we just talk about resources, right? Ooh, I like it. What are the resources that I have, right? Because then we're not just talking about money, right? We're talking about like, who can I count on? You know, if something happens to me and I end up in the hospital and I have a pet that needs to be taken care of, you know, who in my life can I trust to do that? Or what if, you know, I have, what if I get really sick and I need someone to bring me chicken soup or whatever, right? So like, and so cultivating those relationships with ourselves and other people, I think, gives us a deeper set of resources that's more useful than just money in the bank because we all know that money in the bank could just be gone. Absolutely. I I love that and and it speaks to resiliency, I think, because you know, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that you can't know what's going to happen like none of well maybe some of us were prepared we talked about the recession but you know the 
my business was profitable through the pandemic. And it wasn't because I knew what was going to happen. It was because I had a well-resourced company and we candidly had our shit together. We were running beforehand a very clean um, business and we closed out our books every month and we filed our taxes on time and we didn't misclassify our employees as independent contractors. And all of those resources meant that, or yeah, those, those truths meant that I could access the pandemic resources for businesses to its fullest in a way that many companies couldn't and it helped us survive. Right. Well, and having employees who embrace the mission, right? Who believe in the work, who are interested in being there, right? I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of jobs in my life where it was literally, I was only there for the paycheck. Like, I didn't like the people I worked with. I didn't like the people I worked for. I didn't like the work that I was doing. Like, there was no buy-in other than I need this paycheck so that I can buy food and survive, (laughs) right? And so, then the first time something better came along or when it it started to cost me more emotionally and spiritually than I was getting out of the work, I was out of there, right? But developing those relationships with people in in your community, you know, that believe in the same kinds of things that you do, what that means is that they are going to be your resources, right? They're not going to cut and run when things get really hard because they believe in it. A hundred percent. Well, and they trust that, that I will do everything in my power goes back to that power question, everything in my control to keep them safe. Yeah. And so they're, yeah, that, that whole, there, there's some stickiness then to that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there, it definitely is this, this, again, it's tricky, right? Because what we've been taught, we've been brought up to believe by family, culture, religion, society, all of those things is in these fleeting things, right? We, we have to keep chasing and we have to keep working. And of course, that's capitalism, right? Capitalism just saying yeah. to us, like, no, 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 you can't ever truly be safe unless you're constantly on that treadmill, <laughs> right? True. But the thing, the one thing that's going to give us lasting security and a place, a soft place to land and rest is building that strong community. And so, you know, we're not driven to go after that because it takes longer and it's harder work. We have to be willing to, you know, consistently be asking ourselves the question, what's important? How am I showing up? Who, you know, how can I be vulnerable with other people and let them know how they can show up for me? But also because culturally it's not, that's not a value of ours. If the, if the definition of success is what you individually can control, then that creates a population of islands. Yeah versus a network right it's not about what we collectively have it's what i have and how does that compare to what you have and and that is just so it's a construct yeah it is it is designed and it is 
successful. It is working the way it's supposed to work. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely is. It pits us against each other in competition, right, for the next thing. I mean, I think it's, you know, (laughs) that thing about... Like people look at me like I'm crazy when I say I don't think anybody should own a second home until everybody has the first one. Thank you. (laughs) And and people look at me like, wait a minute, I work hard. It's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) But like, can we not agree that there shouldn't be people sleeping in doorways or under bushes or living in their cars? Like, why does that feel so radical? Why, you know, I mean. Well, and it's, I regularly get in fights with people because I do not believe you can be an ethical billionaire because at some point you could have paid your employees more at some point you could have chosen a more ethical supply chain and you know as crazy as this sounds as someone who lives and breathes nonprofits, I work every day with not-for-profit organizations I started my own I believe that philanthropy should be abolished. Like philanthropy maintains the power where we are not, we're, we're philanthropy. Most many um, instances of philanthropy perpetuates the top down where philanthropy is solving symptoms, not causes, you know, this notion that, it costs a fraction to house a person for a year than to mitigate the effects of being unhoused or underhoused yes. for a year. Like philanthropy, if, if we all had enough, we wouldn't need philanthropy, but that removes power from the top. And yeah. that's why philanthropy exists to maintain a power construct. Well, and to be, to be clear, <laughs> most the way that we've designed phil- philanthropic sort of organizations around like foundations and things, it, they actually generate wealth for folks, right? Yeah. So like the the way the rules are written for foundations in the United States, they are required to give a minimum of 5% of their endowment every year. But they're not incentivized to give any more than the 5% because then they can reinvest the other 95%, right? And they're making money often by being invested in the companies, fossil fuel companies and things like that. They're actually the root cause of the problem to which they're donating the 5% to mitigate the effects. I mean, the whole system is... And so these foundations are actually generating wealth for themselves and not paying taxes and not actually solving any of the problems it's just it's this like vicious capitalist cycle where and and everybody goes oh my god that foundation is just so wonderful and what would we do without it and it's like oh my gosh <laughs> we just gave that money <laughs> to the people who actually need it <laughs> then well we and 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 to just the the way that you create a foundation, right? If you have a, a windfall year in your business, you can put that money into a donor advised fund, which shelters it from yes. taxes. Yes. Right. So it's taking it out of the quote unquote public good. That tax you are sheltering your tax money, and then again you are directing the use of that wealth 
because it's in your foundation. And, mm-hmm. and I want, I need to, I feel like I need to cover my ass on this. There are many nonprofits who are working on the core issues and they are doing the good work. They're not working on, on um, symptoms, but for me, it's just like, we shouldn't need to have philanthropy. We shouldn't, right. we have enough. And so why don't we have enough? Right. Right. No, I, to- I mean, I agree. I, you know, full disclosure, work with some really fabulous nonprofit organizations. And the thing is, it's, I mean, that's like me railing against capitalism and also knowing that I'm going to go buy groceries today. Right. I mean, yeah. you can't, this is the world we live in. Right. And, but I think it's incumbent upon us, especially as white women to have these conversations so that we can start to figure out, you know, how do we redefine our notion of what success is? Because if we continue to define it by dollars and cents and the things that we own, then what we're doing is we are creating more incentives for people to hoard wealth. Yes. And we're just making things worse for the rest of the people on the planet. And at some point, I mean, we we have to realize this is all just made up, right? We mm-hmm. made up money. We made up the idea that you could own a piece of land. Like we just made that up, right? <laughs> so, really? like, that could really? all go away. Wait I mean, a minute. Are we going <laughs> to dip into colonialism now, Carrie? My goodness. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is who I am. So, <laughs> but it that whole. But what we didn't make up is the fact that we all belong to each other. Yes. Right? Like, we we are so deeply interconnected to each other, and we spend so much of our time and energy pushing against that for some sort of notion of individual success. Yes. That it's, you know, it's like, okay, that's not only completely counter to our physiology as human beings. Really? But it's counter to reality. Like none of us is completely independent and none of us will ever be independent because if you were completely independent, you would be dead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how do we, how do you and I, the two of us, how do we change this in, in the world, but more specifically in America or shoot in Southern California or in Santa Barbara, this, this um, diminishing of the definition of success as financial or ownership and promoting the definition through your connection to the community, your, your relational success and your emotional success. I mean, I wish I had some sort of, you know, magic bullet answer, but I'm sorry, bullet was the wrong word to use magic pill answer. Um, but in in my life, I mean, I have to say, I think we just keep having these conversations, number one. And number two, we just keep showing up for each other. Like, for me personally, I, you know, was in a, I, I grew up mostly in poverty, um, married someone and ended up at the right place at the right time, basically in Seattle when Microsoft was really taking off um, and enjoyed a great deal of success, what, you know, financial success. Um, and 
my life became transformed when my marriage ended and I started to lean into this idea of what it means to be in community and what it means to show up for other people in community. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, in the past six years, not only have I worked to, you know, have those conversations with my children who are now in their twenties and hopefully out sort of spreading that word as well. But I've created, you know, lots of little communities of folks where we do just show up for each other. You know, we're doing these sort of radical experiments in community care. What does it mean to show up for someone in a way that isn't Sometimes it's financial and sometimes it isn't, but like, how do we start to think about what resources we have? Right. So, for example, you know, I have a three bedroom home and I purchased it because I've got kids and I wanted to have space for them to come back and stay with me or, and whatever. Right. But last year, there was a friend of a friend had, I had never met her in person, but, um, she was escaping an abusive marriage and she needed a place to, be for a while that was just safe. And I have this space in my home, right? How do I reallocate resources to help this person, right? And we're taught to not like I could hear my dad's voice in my head. My dad died in 2008, but I still hear his voice in my head an awful lot. And I could hear his voice in my head going, you don't know this person. You can't trust her. What if she takes advantage of you? What if she steals all your stuff? What if she burns your house down? What if she, you know, but what if the opposite is true? What if I give her a place to rest and reset her nervous system and feel deeply cared for? And what if that is something that begins her healing journey? Mm -hmm. Right? And then what if she takes that back to her community or her children or her, right? I mean, I think it's slow and we're not always going to see the effects of it, but I honestly feel like it's like people say all politics is local, right? It's like, mm-hmm. what can I do today, right now in my life, in my community to just start to shift things a little bit? And I think you're doing that, you know, with visionality. I think um, the people that are working with you, both within visionality and you know, outside the the folks that you consult with. I think that you are so clear in your message. I think that you are so steadfast in sticking to your vision and your passions and your the person that you are, that that becomes something that other people can start to look to and think, okay, this is transformational. Absolutely. Well, and it's, and it's started. So, you know, we had a um, employee graduate, right? Our employees become alumni of our organization. And so she (laughs) graduated and was put into a COO position of a, a very large organization. And now she is implementing our kind, supportive work culture in this much larger organization. And she is using what she learned at Visionality about work-life balance and about remote work to build their hybrid work culture. And 
you know, when she when she had an employee unexpectedly go out on disability, she called me so that we could brainstorm how to um, kindly and supportively help her on to the structure of disability in a, you know, let's go down another rabbit hole about disability and how you have to go without income for at least seven days and whatever, yeah. whatever. Yeah. All those things. But like, I'm, I'm starting to see it. And I, and I had another employee who graduated and, and took a job at, uh, with a youth organization. She texted me and she said, like a life or death emergency today. And it's still under police investigation. So I can't tell you the details, but I need to thank you because you taught me how to lead in this situation. And I'm like, Oh, oh my God, did I really? How? Did, how? Yeah. Oh, how did I do that? See, and <laughs> that, that right there is, that's success. That's success right there in my book. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Yeah, I I struggle so much with fe- with not feeling powerful, and you know, looking at how big the world is and how big the problems in the world it is, and and I can't solve hunger, right? I can't do that. But then looking at where am I powerful, and I am powerful in my company, and I am powerful in my relationship with my community. And so, yeah, just, it's a constant sort of refocus for me of there are so many problems and they're way too big and I can't do anything about them. And then centering back down into, you know what, today we're not thinking about world hunger. Today we're thinking about, uh, you know, how, how to adjust our profitability so that we can give uh, cost of living raises to combat inflation to your nine employees today. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, again, the other piece of that, I think, it, I think it's important for us to continually sort of revisit those successes that we've had, right? Like you knowing that 
that your former employees, your alumni see you as a resource for them, right? Mm -hmm. And you're open to that. Like, yes, call me up. Let's walk through this, right? Um, and, and also recognizing that there are probably so many successes that are happening as a result of the way that you move through the world that you don't even know about and you probably won't ever know about, right? Yeah. There are people that you've come in contact with who have witnessed the choices that you've made and the way that you choose to move through the world who will, that will resonate with them and they will emulate that or they will think about it. And so I think, you know, chalking up all those successes is super, super important for us too, because we are constantly sort of swimming upstream against this capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal society that's telling us that individualism and money are the only important things. And the other piece of it I think that's important for us is to is to start to shift the language we use, you know, instead of talking about financial success, let's ask people, do they feel resourced? Yeah. Like, what are your resources? What are your alternative forms of wealth? There's this um, thing that I do when I work with teenagers, um, trying to help them sort of build self-awareness and resilience, right? Is what are your alternative forms of wealth? Maybe you don't have a bunch of money, but maybe you're a person who's bilingual or trilingual. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. huge. Like that's a big deal. I, I speak one language. <laughs> that's it, right? And there are people out there who speak multiple languages, regardless of the reason why, that's an alternative form of wealth. Maybe I'm a person who can navigate a bureaucracy like nobody's business. Yes. Like I can sit, I will sit on the phone with an insurance company for hours and I will make my voice heard and I will mm -hmm. make my way up that ladder until I get the answer that I need until they agree that they're screwing up. And, you know, like I'm, that's an alternative form of wealth for me, right? So looking at how are the different ways that we are resourced, right? Do you have a huge, do you have cultural wealth? Do you have... Yeah family wealth? Do you have a, you know, a well of people to draw on for innovative ideas in your work or for emotional support when you need it? And, and so starting to change our language, I think is also something else because it, that helps other people begin to see things in a different way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think we don't often give ourselves enough credit for um the amount of work that it takes to just get through a day sometimes i mean mm -hmm. i look at my kids you know who are in their early 20s and and i think about the things that they had to do just to graduate from high school not to mention get into college right all that i never had to do i took the sat one time yep when I was in high school, right? My kids took the SAT at least once a year, every single year they were in high school. You know, oh, no. they had to do service hours. They had to do extracurricular activities. They had to, I mean, there was all this stuff they had to do, not to mention all the extra information that they had to take in and compile and integrate over time, right? Because of the internet, which was yeah. a thing when I was in school. And there's all these invisible forms of work, these invisible forms of labor that yes, they don't produce a tangible thing 
that someone could pay you for, we don't pay attention to those. And I think we need to pay more attention to those too. Yeah. Have you heard of the spoon theory? Yes. Yeah. And and one of my employees took it one step further for me, the spoon and fork theory. So, so the, the spoon theory, right, is that each of us every day have a fixed number of spoons. We each have 10 spoons and, you know, whatever, different, different things, different activities take a different amount of spoons out. And then at some point you just have no more spoons left and that's, you know, you just can't do anymore. But um, what Brian talks about is spoons and forks. So you've got your spoons, which is sort of your available energy or units of output or whatever that is. Um, But then you have forks and forks hurt. So, so some activities not only take spoons, but they actually are forks that, that hurt. So Mm -hmm. having a different conversation, a a difficult conversation could take some spoons, but it might also add some forks. And I, and I just like that so much. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think it's super important for us to, you know, realize like I, my, my kids learned very differently, right? If, if one of my kids has a learning difference and the other one is the sort of neurotypical kid yes. that the school system was built for, even if they on paper are getting the same GPA, they're not working the same, Correct. Amount, right? Like my kid with learning differences is working so often 10x harder yeah. than the yeah. neurotypical kid just to get through the day. But we don't recognize that because the thing that we're measuring as success is what grade did you get on that paper, right? Yes. And we do the same thing at work. Like we don't, you know, we don't recognize like maybe you have two employees, one of whom is a wealthy white woman who's doing this work because she's interested in it and she's good at it. And it doesn't mean that her input isn't valuable. And, you know, that's great. But the other one might be a single mom with a kid on the spectrum and an elderly parent who's also living in the home that they're taking care of. And maybe they've got some historical trauma. And what it takes for each of those two people to show up at work on time and be available for a meeting or a difficult conversation is very, very different. Yes. And so how are we resourced? And then how are we able to use our resources, right? Like some people, especially people who've been under-resourced their whole lives, man, if they were resourced, they could get a million times more things done, right? And not that that's the measure of things either, right? Like, it's not the, for me, it's not the output, right? I mean, I will often ask my kids, we get to the end of the week, I'm like, what's the most fun you had this week? Did you belly Mm -hmm. laugh? Right. Mm -hmm. For me as a parent, that's a measure of success. If my kids had gave themselves permission to belly laugh or goof off or, you know, pay attention to something that they saw that was completely absurd. Or like my oldest daughter has a um, five month old puppy and she Mm -hmm. will, you know, text me a picture of her and the puppy just snuggling at the end of the day. And I'm like, yes, you give me permission to rest and just, you know, enjoy that. Well, and, and I am just, I'm very grateful that my first employee uh, is a mother um, nine years ago. And so we co-created this company um, at its core to support working parents. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, can, is it ideal to have a one-year-old at a client meeting? No, it's, it's not ideal, right? We don't want that to happen every single meeting. But is it the end of the world if it happens once because your babysitter got sick? No, it's not the end of the world. And, and by the way, the, the societal implications of a working mother showing up with a kid at a meeting is very different than a working father showing up. He's father of the year. She is unprepared. Uh, She's unprofessional. And so we, this, we built this company where um, over, over the 13 years I've employed many mothers with many different levels of resources. And we, I remember this one instance, we, we had a, a woman and her babysitter got sick and she was like, uh, I can't leave. I got a kid. I can't leave. This was before the pandemic. I can't leave. I can't go to my meeting. Yeah. And the response from my other employees was, Hey, happy to go to your meeting. No problem. Easy peasy. You stay home with your kid. Or if you really want to go to that meeting, drop your kids off at my house and I'll, I'll handle that. And you can go to your meeting. And it's just like, we're, we're letting people show up as their full and best selves and by the way having parents at a workplace benefits everybody like we are we are better when we have parents and we are a better society when we make we when we build safe spaces especially for mothers right if you've got one kid you're kind of taking seven years out of your quote-unquote working career and and that reentry is often impossible. Yes. So, a making a space for you know Llewellyn, my my first employee, when when I hired her, she worked three to five hours a week, and and that's all. She was a new mom, and since then, over the last nine years, she's had two more kids, and her youngest just got into kindergarten and so now she's working 20 hours a week you know and and like and she's brilliant and so just this idea that in a quote-unquote traditional workplace she would have been excluded because the number of hours was unconventional that she had available and it it just boggles my mind it's actually quite simple to make accommodations for working parents and in fact benefits your business because parents know how to juggle. <laughs> they know yeah. how to show up for one another. They, you know, it's just, and by the way, when you're growing a tiny company like mine, having someone who only wants to work five or 10 hours a week is actually a blessing, <laughs> right? Like, I bet. I, yeah. So it, it even like financially benefited my company to have her parameters. So. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I mean, I think, cause I was one of those people, right? Like I went to college and, you know, I have multiple degrees and, and I worked out in the world for a while. And then when I was 29, I had my first child and my then husband traveled a ton for work and he, I worked for the state and he worked for a big tech company. And so he was making exponentially more money than I was. 
And so it made sense for me to quit my job and stay home because it was going to yeah. be cheaper for us to do that than it was to like pay a nanny. And I didn't want somebody else to raise my kids anyway. But I was out of the traditional workforce for 16 years because yeah. I was raising children. And, you know, my ex, now ex, was, you know, traveling all the time. And so my resume, like my earning power yes. is ridiculous. Like it's, I had, when we got divorced, it was like, I have, he's out there easily making six figures and there's no way. I mean, yes, I have college degrees. Yes. I have written three books. Yes. I, you know, have done, I've raised these children. I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteer hours, you know, working with nonprofits and doing all this stuff, but on paper, yeah, I yeah. do not look like I should be employable, <laughs> frankly. Well, and and you know? even just like super basic nuts and bolts, you know, even taking five years, like Microsoft Word has changed in five years. Like just right. like the, you know, the tools yeah. that we use on a day-to-day -day basis in the workplace have become unaccessible if you're not working with them every yeah. day. And and so there's actually this concept called, you know, we're a return to work company. And so when you're hiring, you know, we, we put in our job description, we're a return to work company. And so please don't be afraid to apply. If you have a gap in your resume for any reason, maybe you're a parent, maybe you got sick, maybe someone in your family got sick, maybe you had a, an emotional crisis, right. but you know, that is just such an easy way. But again, you know, because we're a, a return to work company that takes investment, that takes my profit, quote unquote, right. tying it back to me, not owning a home and de yeah. being deeply committed to the choices, you know, it costs my company money to be a return to work company. Right. And, but it's the right thing to do. And so yeah. just, yeah, sort of tying it all back to these competing definitions of success, opening a door for a person to reenter the workforce is success but it comes at the cost of a dollar sign. Right, right. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think it's, that's why it's hard for folks to, um, again, you, you know, you kind of have to have a foot in both worlds, right? You are a business owner and you have to think about security for yourself and your employees. And also, you know, there's this, this notion of like, here's the person I want to be. Here's the way that I want to move through the world. This is what's important to me. And so um, I think it's important for us to continue to have conversations like this so that we can start to really flesh out. I mean, my notions of success are so much different now than they ever were before. And um, it's amazing because even though I raised my kids to in a particular way to think about belonging and community and, you know, resources as opposed to money. Yeah. They still are, especially now that they're out in the world and not living in my home anymore, right? They're bombarded with these ideas of like, but I have to have a good job, but I have to do this. I have to get this college degree, but I have to be making X amount of money. Right. And so 
constantly sort of battling that um, is it's wild to watch, but I am really, really grateful that there are folks like you in the world and we can have conversations like this so that we can maybe help other people start to justify thinking about this in a different way. Yes. Well, even just that there are, I, I did not realize that there were multiple ways to define success until my therapist gave me those three words. Yeah. And it shift, it really shifted. Well, and even, you know, talking about the emotional and relational, you know, naming those three buckets of success improved my relationship with myself and my emotional response to the way that I show up in the world from, you know, being, being kind of sheepish. Yeah. Well, no, I don't own a home, you know, but, but to shift that, to be really proud that I made the choices that I made and not regret them. Yes. Yeah. And also, I think to be willing to continue to expand what your knowledge base is, right? To yes. continue, it's like it doesn't have to be this one fixed thing. Cause that's the other thing yes. that capitalism did was tell us there's this one definition of success and mm-hmm. this is it now and forever. Right. But, but we could, but we get to shift our ideas of what is success and, and they might change from day to day. Right. I mean, one of the things that I ask myself every single morning when I get up in the morning before I do anything else, before I let my dogs out to go to the bathroom, before my feet hit the floor is I just, I will just silently ask myself, what do I need in order to feel fully resourced today? Mm -hmm. And it looks different every day. Yes. Wow. Having the space to do that. And then knowing that I have other resources to draw on because I've cultivated these relationships with different people is a big dang deal for sure. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I really, this was fabulous. I really appreciate it. You're the best, um, Carrie. I just can't, I don't know, (laughs) make me the president of your fan club. I don't need a fan club, but we definitely need to get together more often and have lots and lots of conversations. Um, And so for folks um, who are interested there, I'm going to post links to your work um, on the show notes so they can come find Visionality and see all the amazing stuff that you're doing. And um, yeah, I'm just grateful. Thank you so much. This was great. Well, and I, I want to take a minute. We we do this webinar series called Building Forward. Yes. And it, it was it came out of the pandemic because as, you know, probably mid twenty twenty one when you know, I kept hearing people say, I can't wait to get back to normal. I wanna mm-hmm. get back. I wanna get back. And I'm like, no, back was bad <laughs> for a lot yeah. of people. So we developed this concept of building forward. How do we how do we take the lessons that we learned during the pandemic and use them to make a better future? And yeah. Carrie, when we had you on, that was, in my opinion, the best one we've ever done. I I cried. A number of our attendees at the webinar cried, but just, you know, you being so real about grief and rage and how that exists, especially when you live a mission driven life, I think is so important because you, you can't conquer something if you don't 
name it. So I just want, I actually want to plug your building forward, which is on our website and on YouTube um, as like this, the first place you need to listen. Cause it was a really impact. It really impacted my life and my work. And I just appreciate you. Mm, thank you. It, I had a great time having that conversation with you. So yeah, but folks definitely go check out the, the web series. Cause it's a good one. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, you'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical themes seem so much more doable for me, and I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw. And on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.